Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hey everybody, welcome back to episode number 10 of Reformed Podmatics. I'm Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we're going to be diving into what it means to worship in the Reformed tradition and a Reformed theology of worship or a view of worship. This is perhaps one of the more controversial discussions within the house of the Reformed tradition uh, on what it means to properly worship God. And so we wanted to spend a little time sort of branching off from the past two episodes uh, that we're getting about Reformed theology proper and now jumping into uh, what what the Reformed tradition's view of worship is. And so uh, there's a lot of different ways that this could go. We could go into the history of worship. We could get into uh, the, the biblical... Uh, support for different views, and we'll hope to do that, of course, to get into what the Bible says about worship. Um, We could get really into the regulative principle. So we hope to touch on a lot of these things, but not to get stuck in any any one of them too much, um, because we want to give an overview of how the Reformed tradition and the Presbyterian tradition uh, has approached worship, and we want to talk about mm. some of the strengths, maybe even some of the weaknesses, mm. uh, and and so on. So uh, maybe you've wondered about um, about Reformed worship. Maybe you've been to other churches that were more or less Reformed and wondered about why they did what they did mm-hmm. in worship. Worship is something that almost everyone is is uh, even the most uneducated layperson is very concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, I once heard it said by a Reformation historian that in the Reformation, a lot of the lay people did not mind wh- whether or not their pa- their pastor or priest was teaching Protestant doctrines. What they cared more about was what their priest or pastor was wearing, which way he was facing during the worship service. Was he facing away from the people towards the altar, or was he facing the people in order to to teach and to pray with them? Um, these sorts of things became more uh, exciting, and they, they incited more passions within people, uh, good or bad. People would get angry if they thought that their pastor or priest was doing the wrong thing in worship, mm. even though... The, for the most part, their pastor or priest could have been preaching heresy. It was the acts and the very uh, visible features of worship that became um, more uh, engaging to them. And mm. so I think that that's an interesting interesting way of looking at how many of us, when we approach worship, we, are, we don't always know the perfect doctrine, but we can tell when there's maybe something up with the <laughs> worship that we are seeing before us, and we can't always explain why we think it's right or why we think it's wrong, but we know that there's something going on. Yeah, part of the conversation about worship isn't just the things that are spoken, 
but as you've already illustrated, that symbols matter a lot Mm -hmm. to people. And even the symbolism of our posture, Mm -hmm. of where we stand. Um, For example, when I start our worship service, I will often stand on the steps in front of the pulpit. And I would guess that there would be some people who wouldn't like that very much because I'm not at the pulpit, which would symbolize that I am speaking for God in some authoritative way. Hmm. And so even just a simple little thing of standing four feet away of where I would be while I'm preaching can kind of be a contentious and even uh, debated issue. Yeah, being among the people and not being at your place of authority by standing up at the pulpit. Yeah, and that's just one, I mean, one little example. One One thing I like to talk about with new Christians is... This is with uh, people who are just getting interested in church. I'll, I'll emphasize so strongly that they would worship in church. And hmm. part of the reason I do that isn't just because there's some rule in the Bible that says that they should do that, which there are. There is evidence mm-hmm. in the Bible that we should worship weekly. But another part is that it shows what the church is all about. And it is hmm. hard to overemphasize the amount of Uh, spiritual and intellectual learning that happens in that hour and 20 minutes or so. It's Mm. so packed with senses like sound and even, um, you know, the touch when we actually are allowed to shake one another's hands in Mm. church and Mm -hmm. say hello to each other. Um, Of course, there's the hearing, there's the seeing. Um, There's so much happening spiritually as well in that worship service that um, I think Christians who go to church every week can take for granted all of the symbols and um, all the learning, all the blessing that they're receiving in a very concentrated spiritual Hmm. meal, you would say. Yeah, there's a lot more going on under the hood in a worship service than just even the sermon and what's being preached or the songs or even the prayers. There's lots of... Yeah, things that we don't even notice. This is something that was really brought to my attention when I read a book called You Are What You Worship um, by, or You Are What You Love, excuse me, by Jamie Smith, um, and how he talked about the formative power of the different things that occur during the worship service. This can be something as simple as bowing your head or... In some churches, kneeling on the kneelers during confession, sure. um, or uh, or yeah, bowing in some churches, like a Catholic church or certain Anglican churches or Lutheran churches, bowing before you take communion, even as you approach mm. the table. Yeah. Um, Another example would be opening the Bible. Yeah. So yeah. like <laughs> the act um, of doing that. That this is why I really love that our church has Bibles in the pews. Yeah. Because. Think of the amazing, amazingly powerful moment of a a group, a large group of people. Hmm. Everyone grabs the Bible and opens yeah. to the same page. What is that communicating? This is our authority yeah. together. Like we're all submitting ourselves in this moment now to what we find in yeah. this book. It's a yeah. powerful thing. Again, that when I say turn in your scriptures to. Um, Jeremiah 36, hmm. it's, it just sounds like something we do, but there, there's, there's something very powerful happening when, you know, even 
symbolically and I would say spiritually as well when we do something simple like that. Yeah, hearing the pages flutter when yeah. a whole congregation is opening up the Word of God, yep. or when people are standing to hear the Word of God read. Um, I don't think we we do that often here at Ammon Valley, but some mm-hmm. churches do, and that can be a good practice. Mm-hmm. Um, or we say, this is the Word of the Lord, thanks be to God, Yeah, and that's the only litany or response that we have every week in our mm-hmm. church. And so I think that's a powerful thing as well. But it shows us, therefore, where our attention should be and where, where our gratitude should be. We should be thankful for God's Word, even the hard parts. There, there have been times where we preach sermons here, and it's yep. not an easy text <laughs> to yep. accept. Yep. Um, I can think of texts, especially from the Old Old Testament, um, that are that will say, if somebody disobeys this law, they should be put to death, or mm-hmm. if somebody does not honor their father or mother, they should be stoned. They should be taken out and stoned. Yeah. Like that is not something that you feel like. Oh, I'm going to say thanks be to God right. at the end of this, um, but it should create in us a posture of gratitude for God revealing Himself and His will for us in His Word. Yeah. So those are just little examples of all that is happening in worship. And I would guess that people who are just getting started in church or just kind of go to church and are kind of good with whatever happens at their church don't often realize the intentionality that goes into planning a worship service. Mm-hmm. Um, in Reformed circles, conservative, theologically conservative Reformed circles like ours, there can be a lot more attention given to what is appropriate and there are often questions asked about should that be in a worship service or not. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to get into yeah. in our conversation today as well. Let's start by asking the very basic question, what is worship? Hmm. What does it mean to, when we say worship, what are we doing? What is what is that? Yeah, that's a that's an awesome question. And I, I really like the description of... Um, worship a psalm of David in Psalm 9, where hmm. he saw, David starts the psalm saying, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. Hmm. And um, I've heard in another translation where it's, it's translated, I will tell of your wonderful works. And so hmm. that is what the Christian hopes to achieve during worship is to praise God with all all your inmost being, as another psalm says, and uh, essentially telling of your wonders, and that, of course, happens in the sermon, but it happens when the church sings. Um, It happens during prayer, actually, as well, where we approach God knowing he's merciful, he's active. Hmm. Um, And so that's what the person is doing in worship, but I know that there's also the dialogical nature of it where God is doing things as well in worship. And so what would you say God is doing, Zach? Oh, man, I think God is blessing us. God is giving us himself. Um, I think God is renewing his covenant with us, particularly in corporate gathered worship on the Lord's Day. Um, We could could think of worship, obviously, as something we do, we can do every day, Mm -hmm. right? We can do it anytime, anywhere. We can worship God. You can worship God at 3, at 3 a.m. on a Wednesday night <laughs> yeah. uh, by looking at the stars and singing hymns. Yeah. Um, or just thinking, <laughs> like, wow, those stars are awesome. Yeah. Thank you, just, God. You don't even have to sing. You, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can just be 
as this psalm says, telling God of his wonderful deeds and yep. praising his name. Yeah. Um, so worship is something that we can do, and actually, in, in some basic level, we always do. This is something that uh, I just recently brought up with the students in our youth groups uh, as we've gone through the first few commandments. Um, I, I, I made the point that we are not created to worship per se. We are created worshiping. Mm-hmm. We are worshiping creatures. The human heart always is worshiping something. The question is whether it's God. Um, but worship has a lot to do, I think, with uh, professing love and appreciation, gratitude, joy in someone or something. So in a basic way, I could be worshiping this may sound heretical. I could be worshiping my wife by praising her, appreciating her, telling her how much I love her, and I'm <laughs> thankful for what she's done. I'm not worshiping in the ultimate way, mm. I don't think, but <laughs> it's a consummation of joy. That's to use uh, C.S. Lewis's language. Mm. He talks about, is God is God selfish for asking us to worship him? Uh, and he, he says, no, because God, uh, or we are blessed when we consummate our joy in God by mm. expressing it to him. Mm. Um, and so worship has to do with with feeling love towards God, mm. although sometimes you may not feel love <laughs> towards God, mm. and expressing that love and appreciation, sometimes even when that's difficult for you, uh, yeah. still thanking God for what he has done. There's, there's also the sense of meeting with God. I mean, that's yeah. certainly in the Old Testament definition of worship and Moses is on the mountain talking with God and meeting with him and um, it's an encounter hmm. with God and so uh, same thing that you said earlier of course that doesn't just happen on Sunday morning mm-hmm. but hopefully we are encountering the risen Christ through his spirit all the time throughout our week yeah. and Sunday morning is a very concentrated, focused time mm-hmm. of one approaching God, um, asking that he would condescend and meet with us. Yeah, so thinking about the Ten Commandments then, we can we can do the first three anytime. Um, we, can, we can obey those, and we should obey those at all times, right? To have no other gods before the Lord, and to make no graven images, of, therefore to worship God the way he wants us to worship him, to not take his name in vain, which really means, I think on a basic level, to not misrepresent him to the watching world Hmm. um, by what we say about him, by how we live our lives as as those who bear his name in baptism. Um, But then the fourth one, the fourth commandment, gets at sort of the specifics of (laughs) (laughs) you should meet together and you should (laughs) worship on a particular day of the week. Mm. Um, And so I I think it's also helpful to go into what worship isn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And by doing this, we can begin to carve out space for what worship is. Um, So the first one I like to say is that worship, uh, there's four views of worship, and I think these four views are helpful in certain ways, but ultimately they're flawed in, in important ways. Um, so the first one would be worship as evangelism, where we make worship mostly an evangelistic experience to reach out to 
lost people, people who are who check the nun box, mm-hmm. N-O-N-E. They have no faith. They're seekers. Um, so those seekers. Yeah. We're, we're going to make our worship about the seekers. We're going to uh, craft it in such a way that it will appeal to them and be attractive to them. Yeah, and the main problem there is that then worship becomes for people. Yeah. Um, and it becomes almost entirely for people. Now, of course, people yeah. are blessed when they worship God and when they hear the gospel when they sing and pray and have fellowship. But um, that's not the ultimate target, certainly not the only target of a worship service. And that's really what it becomes when worship is evangelism. And I really like how Tim Keller approaches this um, because Tim Keller also recognizes that at times worship, some people can be proud of their inhospitality and go the opposite extreme that like worship is just for God. (laughs) And, um, you know, we're going to do so many, like so many things here that people just don't get, but it's for God because, you know, like that no person, no American walking off the street would understand what's going on, but it's for God anyway. So we're not going to explain it. Like that can be the attitude too. And so there's, there's that ditch on that side. And then for the other Worship is just about just about people, and it's just about seekers. But Tim Keller, again, says, um, I preach to the church knowing non-believers are listening. Yeah. And I really like that. I preach to believers knowing skeptics are listening. I yeah. preach to the saints knowing some people are listening to this, hopefully, <laughs> who are kind of against what I'm saying, and I've got to do a little work to bring them in and yeah. and care for them. Of course, that's a Christ-like principle, I think, mm-hmm. in preaching and a very Pauline uh, approach as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, he says, I, I preach to believers knowing non-believers are listening. Yeah, so I think, I, I think it was Keller who famously quipped, we're not trying to be seeker-sensitive, we're trying to be seeker-sensible. We're trying to make sense to seekers, but not be sensitive to their felt needs or preferences for worship styles or so on. Um, Oh, and and one other thing with this is that, therefore, what designates a good or successful worship service, if worship is evangelism, is only did people... Did new people join our church because yeah. of how we're worshiping? Yeah, and that's a very narrow definition of what good worship should look like. Yeah, and if this is your your whole goal of worship, then it changes how you worship yeah. so much in a way that, as we'll get into, makes worship fail the test of biblical uh, truth. Yeah, and so like one example would be, I think, you would never have any place for doing a confession of sin for example yeah because you don't want to offend someone uh, you don't want them to make you don't want to make them feel bad for their sin but this may actually be not only biblical but really the most evangelistic thing you can do during a service sure. having somebody examine their sin in their life and pray and be and pray and confess it to God and then hear that in Christ, if they believe in Christ, they are forgiven of yeah. all their sin. This can be hugely important, but a lot of churches, you don't see things like this through the yeah. service. And an, another one there is the congregational prayer is not very yeah. conducive to evangelism because in our church, we have a congregational prayer, and 
Right now, we're praying for two very beloved members of our church who have cancer, and we need to pray for them when we gather by name. Yeah. And um, it's not just a quick bless those. It's like we we spend a good chunk of the service in prayer. Yeah. And uh, I, I think I've heard, I forget who, but once said... Um, Spiritual people do are not interested in prayer, or you know, unspiritual people are not interested in prayer, hmm. and so you can see if a worship service is for spiritual people based on how much prayer often is hmm. in that service. And honestly, a lot, particularly in the non-denominational churches now, you would probably spend maybe a combined five minutes of that service in prayer. Yeah. And uh, that's, of course, very sad. Yeah. Um, so that's worship as evangelism. And so those are some of the strengths and weaknesses there. Next one would be, and we can do these quickly, worship as education, where we make worship mm-hmm. really only about learning content. It's, it's a mind dump. Yeah. That's about basically having information downloaded into your mind so that you can know truth. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's lots of goodness to this. We want worship to be educational. We want people to be informed no. and edified and built up in their faith by coming to worship on the Lord's Day. But it's not primarily just about learning information. Church is not um, the school. Now, Calvin, I know, calls it the School of Christ. He calls the capital C church, the school of Christ, Mm. but he's not talking about it in a way that is about just having the right information. It's a way of being schooled and discipled in what it means to be a Christian and in living the Christian life. But that's not just about knowing the right things. So are there some... Yeah, that would impact preaching quite a bit. Yeah. So Reformed preaching, I would say truly Reformed preaching, isn't just an appeal to the mind, hmm. but uh, we talked about this a lot with revival. It is really also an appeal to our desires, our our emotions in some ways that we, we can not, not manipulate the emotions, but yeah. recognize that people, <clears throat> that we have emotions when we sin. We, like John Calvin hmm. says, when I sin, I, I hate myself and wish to be another man, right? And so that's hmm. an emotional thing yeah. uh, to to have repentance happening in your life. And and so when it's just education, I would say it starts to creep into that, again, too narrow focus of just being intellectual, mm-hmm. doctrinal, and starts to lose on some of the uh, the transformational nature of, of, yeah. um, of worship. Yeah, we in, in these sorts of circles, it's easy to equate holiness with having the right information. Yeah. And so having the right information is your way of sanctification, right? And there's truth to this, partial truth. We should have our minds renewed by the Word of God, as Romans 12 tells us. But yeah, this is not everything. Like You can go to seminary and walk out no more of a holy person than <laughs> sure. you were years before when you started. Yeah, but Just by having all the right information is not not everything. And that's again why I encourage new believers to come to worship and it's not just for the educational factor. Yeah, yeah. It's so that they could have really an experience of fellowship in the church hmm. and kind of get a sense for what what we what matters to us. Yeah. So it's not just the education but it's the the fellowship, the um 
the spiritual blessing that one receives of being together, all those things are happening, of course. Yeah. So the next one, funny enough, that kind of leads into the uh, next one. Yeah, that's Worship it. as experience. Sure. Um, it's not just an experience. Yeah. It is an experience. It's definitely an experience, and it's an experience that is good for us and necessary for us. But it's but some people often will approach worship as if it were all just about the hype, yeah. the emotional experience, the tears that fall down their face, and especially in worship. So in churches that make the experience of the worship service uh, the most important feature, often what becomes the height of the service is the worship singing, the worship through song. Uh, the sermon sort of takes a backseat uh, if they do the Lord's table, that takes a back seat. It's really about experiencing God in a very passionate and often very private, mm. eyes closed, mm. the lights are dark, yeah. uh, maybe there's lights on the stage with the band. Even calling it a stage. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I try to refrain from <laughs> calling know. it the stage. Sometimes I, I can't think of any better way of I've, explaining it. I've heard, the, <laughs> I've heard the congregation called the audience by a pastor. Yeah. I've heard... Yeah, the pulpit area called the stage very commonly, and I know that that it essentially is a stage. Yeah, um, and I, I, that gets to this whole thing of the worship as experience. I, I think it's important to the auditorium def- instead yep. of the sanctuary. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and so we yeah, have words matter. Um, worship as experience is. Um, I mean, I, I just mentioned that it's not just education, but it is, it is an experience. It's an experience, of course, of meeting with mm-hmm. the living God. Yeah. And so what we mean by experience can sort of be different. Right, like, right, right. Um, I think the, the dangerous interpretation of the word experience would be sort of worship as phenomenon. Yes. You know, like worship is this very... Uh, it's this very different kind of thing that is going to fuel me for... A, a week mm-hmm. of secular living, basically, yeah. um, and and yeah. it's this 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 phenomenal, uh, charismatic mm-hmm. experience that I have, and um, often such people will value the singing portion of the worship service mm-hmm. far more than they will the sermon, and um, yeah. and even in when that's starting to happen, the the sermon then will have to appeal often to people's sense of humor. And mm-hmm. you'll you'll just see a ton of enthusiasm from the pastor, almost like the enthusiasm of the sermon mm-hmm. and the energy of it has to match the energy of the singing portion of the service. And so it, it star- everything is in competition liturgically. Every every item is in competition with one another almost to be like the high point. Yeah. And that's then we're starting to get away from what we're even doing here at a yeah, certain point. That, that also reminds me of what a historian once said. I forget where I read it, but he said, in the medieval Catholic Church, God's presence was found in the sacrament and taking communion. In the Reformational Church, God's present, presence was primarily found in preaching and hearing the Word of God. And in the modern evangelical church, God's presence is typically found in the singing, yeah. in the song experience. And... Part of part of me just wants to say there's truth in all three of those in yeah. different ways. God, I think, as a reformed pastor, I would say Christ is found. His presence is in communion. It's mm-hmm. a spiritual presence. Mm-hmm. It's not just a symbol only. Uh, God's presence is expressed clearly through the reading of His Word. 
and the preaching of his word. Um, and so we experience God that way. He reveals himself through his word. And then God also inhabits the praises of his people. Um, he He is there when we are praising him. And so God's presence is to be found, but we it maybe shouldn't be found uh, only in yeah. one thing and yeah. not anywhere else. God's presence should be found in the whole service. God meets with his people. Yeah. And so the last one we'll get into is worship as exaltation. And this is often what we hear in the Reformed Church as well. Worship is not about me, right? It's only about God. It's just about me giving praise to God. I don't go for it to get any blessing myself. <laughs> yeah. And this sounds really pious and holy, and there's some good intention to it. Uh, but worship emphatically is about what God is doing to bless us as yeah. well. So we come and praise him, but in so doing, we we can't help but be blessed and benefited as well. Even in what times where we don't understand where we were blessed by it, we may go home and think, oh, that was just pitiful. But yeah, in the doing, there is, there is blessing. Yeah, and uh, this is a popular interpretation of worship among people who have a bit of a martyr complex. <laughs> so like... Yeah those who sort of take pride in not receiving anything. And uh, sometimes, you know, you'd see somebody who's like uh, a wealthy person who never spends money on themselves and is, mm. is a bit miserly with, with how they think about worldly things. And, mm. um, and so uh, worship, worship is just for God. It's, it's almost like they're denying themselves ascetically so often that they're they're probably also denying themselves some blessing, yeah. For, that is from God for them that He wants to give them. It's like again, we think of God as Father, um, and any father wants his children to receive good things from Him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what Jesus says when He talks about prayer. It's like who who's going to. Uh, what good father would give you a snake when you ask for a fish? Yeah, and and so we can say in prayer, and I would say in worship as well, mm-hmm. that the Lord would desire to give us good things. There's definitely truth to the idea that we come to worship to give, right? We come to worship to give praise to God. Um, this is why we said a few episodes ago when we talked about soli deo gloria. This is a huge doctrine in Reformed teaching. This is maybe the quintessential Reformed doctrine, that we live to glorify God. Everything is for God's glory. We are most concerned at all times with God's glory. So a good quote that I, I've found and dug up is from a book just simply called Worship in the Reformed Tradition by a very, very helpful Reformed worship theologian and pastor. And he says this, um, this is Hughes Oliphant Old. We worship God because God created us to worship him. Worship is at the center of our existence, at the heart of our reason for being. God created us to be in his image, an image that would reflect his glory. Uh, And I think that that's also what is sort of getting at or gotten at in Westminster Shorter Confession, Mm -hmm. question and answer one. What is the chief end of man? to worship God and enjoy Him forever. So yes, worship uh, is something we do for God. We want to praise God and glorify His name. But, uh, yeah, as Mark said, it's not we shouldn't have a martyr complex about it as if we weren't going to get anything or we shouldn't get anything out of it. We can often 
take this position because we think, well, some people just go because of what they can get out yeah. of it. Yeah. We get that experience, that high. And so I'm going to go, it's not about me, it's only about God. But that is to miss out on the fact that worship is covenant renewal, which helps us get at this idea that it is a participatory thing. There should be no uh, bystanders in worship or merely spectators. Mm, It is something that there are interactions between God and His people. God initiates worship. This is why it's commonly found in Reformed churches that there's a, a call to worship, we're a gathering of, mm. of God's people, uh, and God greets His people and welcomes His people into worship. Uh, and so there is a participatory framework that's, that's yeah. in place in the Reformed Church's view of worship mm. that I think is absolutely essential. God is renewing His vows of the covenant, and we are renewing ours with Him. And He is binding Himself to us, and we are binding ourselves to Him. Um, yeah, you can think of a uh, marriage covenant and, yeah. and how in a marriage covenant, of course, there are two agents and they are called to be faithful to that covenant with one another. And so yeah. there's the covenant that God has made with us, his people, his church, and we are called to participate in that covenant. Um, <clears throat> where yeah. This uh, gets a little bit to one of the errors that we often see in the way that worship is led in particularly charismatic larger churches where Hmm. it has less to do with covenant and with, I would even say, a little bit less to do with participation than with something that is happening up front, like the preaching or the leading of the worship. It's, It's not meant as much to draw people into participating in worship as it is almost uh it is honestly sometimes a performance of worship yeah and you're doing it for the people yeah you're worshiping almost in their stead yeah and that's why often the microphone will get turned way up for the worship leader such to the point that people can't even hear themselves or each other singing it's almost as if it's just the one person up on the stage yeah. in the auditorium <laughs> yeah. leading the worship themselves. For and the it, audience, again, actually, that's a huge, important term to call the congregation yeah. the audience, because yeah. then they're just receivers. Yeah, and then it, it, it actually very ironically makes modern worship more, look more like pre-Reformational medieval Catholic mm-hmm. church worship, where you had the priests up front in, in, in many periods in the in the medieval church priests were the only ones taking communion wow um and in both forms um often people would take the bread but not the wine the wine mm-hmm. was almost seen as too holy mm. and so the people would watch the priests take it and they were believed to have been taking it on behalf yeah, of the people vicariously so you're yeah. doing it you're doing worship up up front and mm-hmm. everybody else is watching and becoming a spectator to worship yeah. one of the big emphases in the Reformed and really in the Protestant world in general is that the people are participants in worship. Uh, and so this is why there's often been in Reformed and, and Reformational worship, people uh, being part of, saying part of the prayers, about responsive prayers. This has been a, a mm-hmm. practice of the church for a long time in order to incorporate people into the worship Um and so, so that's that's an important yeah. part of it as well. But now I think we should turn to 
maybe the most controversial and, <laughs> and unique contribution of the Reformed tradition. We've done a good job, I think, of getting at a broad theology of worship, mm. but we would be remiss if we did a whole conversation about Reformed worship without talking about the regulative principle of worship. Uh, the so RPW. The, the RPW, as I will <laughs> often see it online. Uh, what is the regulative principle? What uh, What is the maybe the opposite view that it's often pitted against? Mm-hmm. And what do we think of it? What do we make of it? Yeah, the regulative principle is, you can think of mainly that first word, yeah. the regulative. So this is the idea that there are regulations mm-hmm. um, that... Uh, for worship, that worship is regulated by um, the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, we could think of it almost as there being like the NFL has a rule book, mm-hmm. and when people get together to play a an NFL game, that rule book determines what may or may not happen during the game. Mm-hmm. And so, um, those who hold very strongly uh, to a firm view of the regulative principle would see the Bible as that kind of rule book that tells us what should uh, should and should not happen. And anything that is, this is where the RPW goes um, a little bit further than just a rule book. Anything that's not included in the rule book may not happen yeah, automatically so as well. That I've heard it said, that which is not expressly commanded is forbidden. Yeah. So it has to be expressly commanded. That's the stricter version of the regulative principle. The, then the, the opposite view, which in fact I really don't think anyone really holds to, it's often said that Lutherans, Anglicans, Catholics all hold to what's called the normative principle of worship, where it is believed that that which is not expressly forbidden is is permissible. Hmm. So if it's not said you can't do this, then you could do it. Um, as far as I know, nobody actually believes that. Everybody, <laughs> uh, Lutheran, Catholic, Anglican, non-denominational, and reformed all want to worship according to the Bible, I think. Yeah, but there w- would be probably some mainline, very liberal yeah, congregations right, right. who don't really care. D- yeah, but That's any true. any orthodox believing church that preaches from the Bible would have in its in its bloodstream, you might say, a desire to do at least what is generally biblical. Yeah, but this is taken in the Reformed world to to be more of an emphasis in how we approach worship, and I think that's a good thing. Um, back to Hughes Oliphant Old and his very influential book, uh, he simply says, this then is the first characteristic of Reformed worship. It is worship according to Scripture. We want our worship to be how God tells us to worship. I've, I once... Was as I was in seminary, I once had a pe- professor walk in with a sort of a smile and smirk on his face, and he was kind of laughing. And we asked him, "Professor, what what are you laughing about?" <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, I was just in the office with other professors. We were having lunch together, and uh, one of one of the other professors made the comment that the regulative principle is almost like the five love languages applied to worship. Um, we you, we've often heard that we." All of us have a certain love language, and if you want to love us best, you should love us in our love language. 
So for my wife, it's spending quality time together, time that is intentional, one-on-one, where it's just us and distractions are put away. And so if I want to love her best, I shouldn't just spoil her with gifts and mm. and and things like that. That's what you want to do. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's the easiest thing for me. Just hey, I can <laughs> I can take twenty bucks and go buy her yeah. something nice. Um, I can get her flowers, and she appreciates that, of course. But if if she wants to be loved, if I want her to feel loved, I should spend time with her. And so this is the idea here: is that. We don't worship God how we want to worship God. We should worship God how God commands us to worship Him. Mm. And that is something that I think is hard to disagree with, but that moves the conversation forward Mm -hmm. and begins to make us think, well, if God has specific ways for me to worship Him, does that mean that there are ways that I shouldn't worship Him that I may think I should? Uh, yeah. So what would be some examples of maybe breaking the regulative principle and worshiping God in ways that he has not told us to worship him? I think generally it's most helpful to worship God, of course, where the focus is on God himself. Um, and therefore, there are things that happen at times in worship services that really draw attention onto a person. Um Jonathan Edwards would be very, very careful never to allow humor in a sermon. (laughs) And his reason, um, and one of his resolutions, is that he would never be be intentionally humorous, especially on a Sunday, because humor draws attention to the individual. Hmm. Um, Now, I broke that rule this past Sunday where I sort of... uh, in a self-deprecating way, talked about how I made a mistake um, in part of the liturgy. I had everyone remain seated as we sang, standing on the promises. Hmm. And so that was a silly thing that I did without kind of processing all that much. Um, and so I would say maybe I broke that rule. <laughs> um, but generally, I do think that, of course, the the emphasis should be on on God, on what he's doing. And um, when humor becomes an essential ingredient of a sermon, I would say that's breaking the regulative principle and, hmm. and keeping the, the focus on God, on his work, on his activity. Um, you know, the, one of the worst culprits of this would be Joel Osteen, where he starts just about every one of his sermons that I've ever heard with a joke. Hmm. And it's just a pure joke. It has nothing to do with the text or his sermon. It's just a joke. And the effect of that is to get people to like him and to sort of loosen up the crowd, be mm. that seeker-sensitive kind of guy. And and I would say the RPW, keeping the, the focus on the works of God, on our praise of God, on the activity of God, would not allow for jokey moments of, <laughs> um, of, of the sermon uh, or of the worship service. It, it's okay to... To, to laugh a little bit, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in one sermon that I, I like of his, uh, tells a bit of a funny story to start, and that's to actually teach somebody about what the presence of God is like. Hmm. And so it, humor can be used, but I would say jokes, just pure jokes, yeah. should be very, very carefully applied hmm. uh, and, and probably dismissed. Yeah, that reminds me of a service I once watched. I saw a clip of it. I didn't watch the service, but... It was either, I think it was a Roman Catholic church, or maybe it was an Anglican church that was uh, 
it was led by clowns. So the the priests <laughs> were dressed up as clowns, and oh, it was supposed to somehow be a blessing to people who are involved in carnival work or something like that. I don't, I oh, don't know. It was, but it was it was bad. It was as bad as it sounds, and it it was. Uh, the height of what you were just saying, we, yeah. we shouldn't be joking. And one, and maybe another quick example. I, when I was candidating at a church, and I won't say, of course, which church this was, hmm. they wanted to interview me as a part of the worship service. Oh yeah. And now, in hindsight, I, I actually should have said I would prefer that that not happen during a yeah. service of worship. That I would be interviewed, and the congregation could get to know me a little bit more. But the way that they interviewed me to go even further was that a puppet uh, was teaching the kids some little lesson, and they had a person behind there, and the puppet interviewed me Hmm. during the worship service. So, of course, that that actually, the, the, the rest of the the candidate candidating weekend actually went quite well, but that showed me a lot of their attitude as yeah. a church towards the sanctity and sacredness of the serv- of the worship service and so we actually that that was kind of the deal breaker for me. Yeah, that brings me to another one. I've I've seen lots of skits in churches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, you can make good arguments, I think, for very different it's a very all sorts of different things happening in a worship service that I think could could be have could could have good arguments made from scripture. Uh, but a skit is not one of those things. <laughs> I, I, I think there's no matter how you slice it, it would be really very hard to make a good argument for why a skit should be involved. And so the regulative principle gets at certain essential elements that should be involved mm-hmm. in worship. Um, there are certain circumstances that uh, that would be things indifferent. What time do we meet for worship? Well, nobody knows. That's not, that's not, that's not something that is expressly Commanded in Scripture, it doesn't say to meet at nine thirty a.m. on Sundays. Sure, um, but you want to use that. That's that's open to prudence and to wisdom. Uh, deciding together, well, okay, nine thirty is a good time for most people. We're not going to do two a.m. on Sunday morning. Yep. Uh, that probably wouldn't be the best. So we're going to pick a time. And that another question within that conversation is worshiping twice on Sunday morning and oh, yeah. evening, right? And so. Is that a requirement of Scripture? Well, there's a reference to the morning and evening sacrifices, yeah. um, and that's often used to support the evening service. I, I wouldn't say it is a requirement, but I would say it's a real blessing mm-hmm. to those who participate in worship twice on Sunday, and I've always found it to be a great blessing. So is it commanded in Scripture? No. Um, but is it a, a blessing to do that? Yeah, and it's certainly permissible. So... The idea behind all of this is that we want to worship how God wants us to worship Him. Uh, we don't presume to worship God however we want to, um, because if that were how we could do worship, well, then the whole idea of having clowns lead worship, there's no problem with that, right? Right. Our intentions, you could say, are still good, but uh, God, God, God does give us... Uh, a clear idea of, of how to worship him, at least in general ways. Mm. Um, but there are problems, I think, with the stricter definitions of the regulative principle. It's interesting looking at the Reformed tradition for the past 500 years and all of its variations that we got at two episodes ago. 
Uh, there's di- all these different countries that are represented, and each of them sort of has its unique way of doing things. They all hold to the regulative principle in some way, hmm. but they all look drastically different. One good example of this would be that in Calvin's Geneva, the liturgy would have included uh, a profession of faith using the Lord's Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had no problem using a creed in the worship service. But if you move across the pond a hundred years later to England, the Puritans were very adamantly against this by and large, uh, because there was no express command, they said, uh, for reciting a extra-biblical creed. And so, therefore, we should not do this in our worship service. Mm. Um, and so, there were different v- takes on what it meant to worship God according to His Word. Um, and so, if we use the definition as we've given it, that we shouldn't, whatever is not expressly commanded is forbidden, it becomes very hard to build a case for what worship should be. And it, where are, where is it expressly commanded to preach a sermon on yep. the Lord's Day in church? You could you could find total lots of places of sermons being preached yep. in the New Testament, and the idea of preaching the gospel is prominent, of course. Yeah, and Paul's command for Timothy is to preach the word in season and out of season, right? But Which does is that kind say of all the time, does that but, mean out in the streets, open yeah. air preaching? Does that yeah. mean in his backyard when he has people over? Did that does that mean Sunday morning? Yeah. So it's not expressly commanded to do it on the Lord's Day, um, or maybe a better one would be. Uh, where is it expressly commanded for women to take communion? It's, there's not a verse that says women need to take communion. Uh, and so w- how do you do that? Um, and so taking the Lord or the regulative principle to its far extreme makes it almost untenable and impossible. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there are some, some problems with uh, a str- super strict and tight version of the regulative principle. Well, and in John 4, Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman. It, it's almost like he's talking with a reform, a regulative principle zealot today because she is trying to figure out where do we worship? What you know, We got to go <laughs> to this mountain. It's, it's not that other mountain. It's this one that we have to hmm. go worship at. And um, that's that's kind of what the... RPW zealot, that's their that's their kind of that's their attitude towards worship is what is permitted, what is commanded, what is excluded, and I have to figure out exactly how to narrowly define that. And what does Jesus respond? Hmm. The Father desires worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. Yeah, it won't just be on that mountain. Anymore. Yeah, and so Jesus, um, if He wanted to counteract them with a better RPW with a better regulation um, and be really specific about, uh, well, it's not that mountain, it's this mountain, or, you know, like uh, he doesn't appeal to that with yeah. this person. He appeals to the more general principle of yeah. spirit and truth. And so I know a lot of people will then, people who love the regulative principle will often say the truth, truth means. Yeah. <laughs> The Bible, right? Jump on that. He he wants people to worship him in spirit and truth. I don't think, actually, that that's exactly what Jesus is getting at in that context. Mm-hmm. Of course, Jesus wants us to worship uh, the Father in a biblical way. Yeah. Um, and but he he wants us to worship him in truth, meaning we we are truthful about ourselves. 
Hmm. We're truthful about what's happening in the world where we value his truth, his word, his law in worship. And and so uh, Jesus kind of shatters that that woman's um, expectations or uh, paradigm hmm. by saying it, it is about the heart. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, it's about are you meeting with the Lord? Do you desire to be humbled in his presence? Um, that, that to me is what Jesus is getting at in that conversation. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. That's a, that's a good thought. I've never thought about it that way from John 4. Um, I was thinking of Deuteronomy 4 um, and how it sort of gets at this a little bit as well, where it says, you shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So the idea is to follow God's commands. Now, that's not talking about how we worship on the Lord's day necessarily, but the idea is is clear. Um, but another good way of thinking about the the regulative principle, I think a better way that moves it forward and makes it actually tenable and helpful and not... Uh, a, a vice grip or <laughs> yeah. a, cons- a constraint on us that makes worship impossible comes from the reformer Martin Bootser, who's actually sort of a mentor to John Calvin. And he puts it, and I, I think what is maybe the best way. Yeah, that's good. Nothing should be introduced, he says, or performed in the churches of Christ for which no probable reason can be given from the Word of God. No probable reason. So this yeah. allows room for uh, using sanctified wisdom, using uh, your wisdom and in, in developing, okay, what what are some ways that we should worship according to the Bible? Um, and so this would allow for, I think, uh, what Calvin did in using, say, the Apostles' Creed and worship. Mm-hmm. The The Bible tells us to confess our faith and to, mm-hmm. uh, to praise God. To proclaim the works of yeah, God. Proclaim the works of yep. God. And so the, the Apostles' Creed, then, is a very succinct and helpful way of doing exactly that. And so while there is no express command to recite the Apostles' Creed in a worship service, because the Apostles' Creed wasn't around in the time of the Apostles, even though the name implies that, it came uh, probably around 150 or 200 AD, it it is a way of us proclaiming God's mighty works Mm -hmm. in creating the world as the Father, and in sending the Son, the Son coming in human flesh, dying, being raised and ascended, and then the Spirit coming and forming the church, and so on. We see the grand redemptive acts of God as we say the creed. Mm-hmm. Um, the creed doesn't have any magic in and of itself, uh, but it's succinctly summarizing what God has done in yeah. Christ. And I, I really like, you know, even in something like reciting the Apostles' Creed as a church, um, it's sometimes it can feel like that's done just to teach what we believe. But yeah. I, my attitude has, has shifted a lot in accepting that as just like a song hmm. where I'm praising God for every line of this work that he's done. Hmm. And so that should make us actually quite excited to say the creed together, yeah. just like we like to sing together. We're going to say these things that we love that God has done. He's hmm. created. He's redeemed us in Christ. He has sent us the Spirit. Um, yeah, you know, and, and there's of course things within each part of that. But um, but to to make it adoration and not just education. Hmm. 
to make it. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a, man, it's a, I love that God created the world and everything in it. I love that yeah. he, he, Christ, his only begotten Son, is our Lord. And, mm-hmm. you know, I love that the Spirit uh, give, uh, make, makes us regenerate and awareness of the forgiveness of sins and uh, binds the church together and so forth. So um, to make that adoration, I think, really elevates it to uh, an important part of, of the worship. And it's sort of making me think we should do it more often, even in our yeah, own church. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> that's really good. I've never thought about it in quite the same way as maybe a song. I've often conceived of it as being a pledge of allegiance. Yeah, that's I'm, good too. Yep. I am marking myself off from the city of man, and yep. I am pledging my allegiance to to God alone. And so, when I say I believe uh, in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit, I am saying I believe this as opposed to what the world wants me to believe. I pledge my allegiance to Christ alone and not to the world. Mm. And so I take my marching orders for all of life in from Christ and not from what the world would have me do. Yeah, and maybe as we start to close here, I would want to note that we can talk so much about the nuts and bolts of what happens, what should happen during a worship service, what shouldn't happen. Yeah. But really, as a pastor, I would want to focus people on their heart, on their attitude in yeah. worship. Are they approaching God in total humility, in total dependence, um, just in re- in real repentance? Um, and that's really summarized in a quote that I found from a Puritan named Stephen Charnock about yeah, the attitude of the worshiper. That that's also what Jesus is getting at in John four with this woman. It's mm. it's it's not about um, regulations as much as it is about the heart. And so mm. Stephen Charnock says, God is a spirit infinitely happy. God is joy. God is love. I mean, that's sort of my addition to it. But um, (laughs) Stephen Charnock then says, Therefore, we must approach him with cheerfulness. He is a spirit of infinite majesty. Therefore, we must come before him with reverence. He is a spirit infinitely high. Therefore, we must offer up our sacrifices with deepest humility. He is a spirit infinitely holy. Therefore, we must address him with purity. He is a spirit infinitely glorious. We must therefore acknowledge his excellency in all we do mm. and in our measures contribute to his glory by having the highest aims in his worship. He is a spirit infinitely provoked by us. Therefore, we must offer up our worship in the name of a pacifying mediator and intercessor. So Man, um, that, that, good. <laughs> that appeals to uh, some of the regulations which are good because God... Um, like he says in his own mm. word, he wants to be worshipped with 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 reverence and awe, um, mm. but also to take an attitude of wanting to be in his presence. I think is captured in that quote as well. Yeah, like we want to be near him. We desire his uh, his grace, and that is applied to us through Christ. Um, and we also desire to live in his presence, and that's all enacted during a Sunday morning worship service. Amen to that. That's really good. We should have a serious joyfulness yeah, in worship. Yeah. Um, and that's, so we should be serious and as we approach and be expectantly joyful and knowing that we will receive his blessings from being in his presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's so much more we could talk about. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we just scratched the surface, yeah. but this I think was a really good introduction to how the Reformed 
tradition approaches worship. Uh, and we want it to do it biblically. We want it to be uh, simple yeah. in, in a sense that it, it it follows from the Word of God and doesn't add to that. It doesn't make worship more complex or more showy or confusing. Mm. Uh, worldly. Or yep. worldly. Yep. And it, it wants to to worship God, and, and it wants to be blessed by being in His presence, yeah. uh, because this is what happens. God interacts and makes His covenant with His people, and this should be a joyous thing yeah. that God has promised Himself to us. And every week, we are united uh, more deeply with Him through word and sacrament. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, please go ahead, like, subscribe, follow, mm-hmm. whatever you have to do uh, to stay in touch with us. Uh, We look forward to being with you guys in the future. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for listening.